Good morning, Sanctuary. Christ is risen. It's good to be here again and on a lovely day. First things first, I did not join the military. This is just the jacket I brought with me. I, I appreciate the men and women who do serve in our military and all are grateful that I'm not one of those people. My dad would be the first to tell you. He was a Marine, is a Marine, I guess, uh, would insist that everyone is safer, that I'm not serving in that, that capacity. You know, the Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson movie, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. You don't want me on that wall, you don't need me on that wall. So this, this week, as, well, not just this week, but knowing that I was going to be speaking this week about, about Palm Sunday, I was talking with my wife about it because I, I, I preach pretty often, and one of the things that happens when you preach pretty often is that you can kind of get in a kind of thematic groove where you start to say similar things, even if you're reading different texts or you're engaging different moments in the church's year, you still end up coming back to the same themes. And I, and I was telling her that I really don't want to be repetitive. And I asked her if she would more or less write this sermon for me. <laughs> and it's not gone terribly well. So I'm going to share with you um, a little text exchange. <laughs> they might have to edit this out of the recording. So I say to her this morning, this sermon is going to be awful. <laughs> Impossible, she says. What are you preaching on? What you said for me to do. This is all your fault. <laughs> she laughs. I send a, an angry face emoji. Then she, this is her spiritual gift, she responds, maybe the love of God was just too, cha too challenging a task for you. And I had to admit that that's true. <laughs> she said, you do dark so well. Maybe just emphasize the crucifixion. Spend the bulk of your time there with a little salvation sprinkled in here and there. And so then I sent her a grotesque image of Christ on the cross. So romantic. <laughs> so I'm supposed to be talking about the love of Jesus today. I'm going to try to do that. Um, but if this doesn't go well, it was my wife's sermon and all the blame goes to her. I'm just, don't kill the messenger, right? So today is, as we know, Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday and all of the other days of Holy Week reinforce to us this truth, that God comes to us when we are not coming to him. It, this is... This is the heart of the gospel, but it is, it's easy to lose touch with the reality that the life, the Christian life of faith, is not a life of us coming to God, but is the life of God coming to us. Even when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he immediately goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you, willing and doing what pleases him. So even our working out our salvation, even the effort we put forth, is nothing but the grace of God strengthening us, empowering us, directing us, provoking us. 
And Christians have to return to this again and again because it's so easy to forget that our message is not a message of you should go to God, but God has come and is coming to us. I don't know if you've read, maybe heard the story of Pilgrim's Progress, which has its place. I don't want to dismiss it entirely, but Pilgrim's Progress sets up this idea that we are the burdened ones and we must make our way, make this journey to the cross where we are unburdened. So we make our way through all of these various temptations and trials until at last we come to the foot of the cross and there we're freed. And there may be some truth to that in in particular context, but as a paradigm of the Christian life, it's the opposite of the truth. Because the truth of the matter is that, yes, we are burdened and we could never make our way to the cross. And so Christ comes to us and takes the burden from us and bears it for us, dies bearing it, and then leaves it buried as he's raised again. It's not about, I'm not the pilgrim making progress toward God. He's the pilgrim making progress toward me and overcoming the burden that I have to bear. That's the gospel. This is not about my finding God, but about God finding me. This is not about my knowing God, but about God knowing me. There's a wonderful passage in Galatians where Paul says, you know God, or better, are known by him. The the root of the matter is not that I relate to God, that I love God, that I have faith in God. The root of the matter is that he loves me, that he claims me, that he relates to me, that he has faith in me. That's the root of the matter. And so the first and most important thing about Palm Sunday is to remember he comes to us. He comes to us. And this is always true. No matter what's taking place, there's a wonderful scene in, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia where there are a, a couple of kids who are being bullied on a, on a playground and they cry out to Aslan and immediately Aslan being the, the Christ figure in the story and immediately they, they're in Narnia and Jill says to Aslan, thank you for hearing us when we called for you. And he says, oh child, you could not have called for me if I had not called for you first. So what they experienced was this moment of they're in trouble and they cry out to God. What they didn't know is that God had already called them. That's why they were able to call out to God. So no matter what's happening in our life, know that God is coming to us. No matter where you are, God is on his way there. And to use another line from from the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. God is coming to you. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, he will take your burden. He will bear your burden and bury it. That, that's, that's the gospel. And then he, he comes to us, but this, this is important too. He comes to us, and this is because he loves us. And this, we know this. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. I think there's probably never been a time in the church's history that Christians like you and me, Christians in our part of the world, have been more likely to talk about how much God loves us. We sing about it all the time. We preach about it all the time. We talk about it, but I, I, I think there's this great irony. It's almost as if the more we talk about God loving us, the less we actually understand it or believe it. So it's, it's absolutely, it's cliche even to say that God loves us, but he, he loves us. And it's so difficult for us to get our hearts and minds around what that must mean. One of the hymns that is kind of, stood out over the last couple of decades is Stuart Townsend's How Deep the Father's Love for Us. 
lovely song. But even in that song, there's this, this kind of sour note for me where in that opening stanza, he says, you know, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And it's as if we can't talk about God loving us without framing it in terms of we're despicable, we're not to be loved, and he loves us anyway. It's as if the only way we know to really emphasize the love of God is to emphasize our unlovability. Right? That the only way we can make the gospel convincing, to make it seem powerful that God would come to us, is by making our state seem humiliating, disgusting, that we're wretches that he wants to relate to anyway, because that's just how he is. But I think, I think something's off about that. I don't think that's how God finds us. I don't think that's how God desires us. I don't think that's how God relates to us. Now, there's some way in which it is true, sin makes a wretch of all of us. But I don't think that's the way God perceives us. I mean, imagine it like this. Imagine you see a man, an older man on the street, or an adult man on the street, and it's obvious that he's drunk and that he's covered in his own filth and starving. Your likely response in that moment, when you, when you see him and you smell him, when you recognize what's taking place, there's going to be a kind of revolt in you, a kind of shock and a desire to skirt around him. But if that were your father, or if that were your brother, or if that were your son, you wouldn't respond in that way. You would still see everything that's taking place, right? You would still smell what you smell and see what you see. But there's a relationship, an intrinsic connection that trumps all of that, right? So your body responds in a very different way. I mean, to just put it absolutely crudely, when my kids are sick, I, I find it so endearing. But if your kids are at my house sick, it's not endearing, Right? Your kids being sick at my house just makes me nervous, right? My kids being sick at my house brings out my father's heart for them, right? Something like that is true of God. He doesn't relate to us like some stranger on a corner that he sees in filth. We're his children. We're his love. We're his life. And I think it's crucial to understand not only does God come to us, but he comes to us delighting in us. He doesn't come to us holding his nose. He doesn't come to us overcoming his own instincts. He comes to us because he can't not come to us. He's moved with compassion. I mean, think about how many times in the story of the Gospels we're told that Jesus is moved with compassion. What's moving him? The attachment he has to these people. These are his people. These are his children. These are his friends. He can't not respond to them. God loves us. He absolutely loves us. And he doesn't just love us in spite of himself. He loves us because of who we are and because of who he is. And he's not ashamed to be our servant. Now this is where the gospel gets hard to swallow. Let's look in Philippians 2. This is the epistle for the day. Philippians 2, Paul is making an argument to the church, 
our churches and asking them to to care for one another. So we'll, we'll pick it up right at the beginning of chapter two. And then we're going to come to the, 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 the Christ hymn, which we're all familiar with. I'll talk about it in just a moment. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he says, as if to seal all of that, let the, mind, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we read this text, because of the way we've been conditioned, we almost certainly imagine this to be a story of humiliation and an exaltation, that Jesus is God, he's privileged, and he gives up all of that privilege and lives this humiliating life that ends in crucifixion. And then God, seeing Jesus' faithfulness in the midst of all this humiliation, raises him from the dead and exalts him again to a place of privilege. But that's not what the text is saying. We're imposing on the text our idea of what it means to be God in relationship to creation, and we think that God is privileged in relation to the rest of creation, or to, in relation to creation. And that creation is humiliated and empty in relation to God. But that's not what the incarnation is about. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the incarnation is not a humiliation for God. God did not have to become less than he is to become all that we are. He didn't have to give up being himself in order to be like you and me. And it wasn't humiliating for God to be human. God was not humiliated by taking on flesh, by taking on creaturely life. It's not in all a case of being human makes God less. It's that by becoming human, God makes humanity more. God transforms humanity, as the church fathers will say over and over again, right? God becomes human, that humanity might share in the life of God, might become like God, right? God transforms humanity, but he's not becoming less in becoming human. He's not humiliated in becoming human. He is exalting humanity, but not from a place of humiliation. He's not doing it from a position of shame. He's not ashamed to be one with us. I mean, the language of Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's not humiliation for God to take on flesh. And notice, there's nothing like that in the text. There's no, there's no suggestion in the text that God is humiliated. It says that he emptied himself, and sometimes we read that as if it means he gave up being what he was. But that's, that's not, again, I think, the right way to read a text. It's not that he emptied himself in the sense that then he ceased to be God. It's he emptied himself in the sense that he poured all of himself into the life of this man, Jesus. 
He emptied all that is God. The fullness of God comes into the life of this man that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And he takes on the form of a slave and then dies this death of crucifixion. But notice the text is very clear. He's found in human form and then he humbles himself. Right? He's found in human form. That's first. That human form is the form of a slave. That's first. And then he humbles himself to death on the cross. The cross is humiliation. The cross is the moment in which he who is sinless becomes sin for us. He who is the light of the world enters into the, into the heart of darkness. But he humbles himself for death on the cross. Becoming human is not a humbling. Sorry about that. I'm getting carried away. Might have to get a handheld mic to do this right. You can start waving the palm branches at any, at any point that, that you'd like. But th- this is key to, to, to we, and, and I think to, to all of us, that in becoming human, God did not humble himself. God is humble, and that's revealed in his humanity, but he didn't humble himself to become human. Do you hear the difference? God is humble, and that's revealed in the kind of life that Jesus lived. But he didn't have to humble himself to become human. Because God is not a privileged person who gives up that privilege to live with those of us who are poor. God is our life. And he created us to be what we are. So in taking on our humanity, he's not condescending in the sense of becoming less or humiliating himself. He's manifesting himself, revealing himself in our humanity. The humble God reveals himself. He doesn't humiliate himself in order to be human. And this, I think, is is critical. God's life lived humanly can only be revealed as the life of a slave. Now, this, this is hard. This is hard to get our minds around. Because for us, when we think about slavery, when we think about people who are enslaved... First of all, that it's an injustice, but also that it is a humiliation. It's beneath their dignity, and that's true. Jesus, though, cannot express the fullness of the life of God in our world without taking the form of those that we have subjugated. So it looks humiliating because we have constructed a world in which those who are made slaves are humiliated. That's what we've done to people. Jesus, by taking that role, is insisting, no, you can't actually do this to human beings. Even when you try to treat human beings as if they have no dignity, what I'm going to reveal by taking the form of a slave is that even those you humiliate are not humiliating for me. God is not ashamed to be a slave with the slaves. God is in the belly of the boat with all those slaves coming across the ocean. Because no matter what we do to them, we can't efface the fact that they are his, that he is one with them, that they are his body, that they are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. So we can starve them, we can beat them, we can humiliate them in whatever ways we want to humiliate them, but the truth remains they bear the image of God. Because he 
comes among us as the slave. And he comes among us as a slave not only to affirm the dignity of those, even those we abuse, but he comes among us as a slave because God's relationship to us is one in which he serves us. Now, we're used to thinking about lordship as authority over. And this is, this is revealed in, in all kinds of conscious and unconscious ways. We think of God as having power over us. God is the power over us that makes commands, that makes demands, that will make a judgment about whether or not we've responded to those commands and demands. But when God came among us, that's not how he lived. And that's not how he talked about himself. What he said is, I am among you like one who is a slave. And he gave them this image. He said, when a master sits at a table and a servant comes to serve the master at the table, who is greater? The one at the table or the one who serves? I am the one who serves. We've imagined the Christian life as God is sitting at the table and we're serving him. Think about how many times we've talked about serving God. I just want to serve God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you're called to serve God. It's that God is serving you. I am among you as one who serves. When he came, he came and took the form of a slave. Now, I know you're shaken. Let me make it worse. You, you notice in the passage we read, Paul says, talking to the Philippians about how they should relate to each other. He says, don't, don't be conceited. Don't do anything from ambition. But in humility, consider everyone better than yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of hard to swallow. Right? That I'm supposed to consider other people better than me? That doesn't even seem healthy. I don't know what my therapist would say about that. But here's something that makes that harder. It's right out of that statement that Paul says, let the mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. God considers you better than he considers himself. You see how hard that is to hear? Because we imagine a God who is relating to us ultimately because he benefits from that relation to us. The point that Jesus is making, or one of the points that Jesus is making by being a slave among us, is to say, my relationship to you does not benefit me. God's relation to us does not make God's life any different. God's life is not enriched by us. God's life does not improve because you decide to believe. Well, maybe you, but not me anyway. No, God's life is not improved. God's relation to us is one in which our lives are changed. We're the ones at the table, and he's the one serving us. God is not calling you to serve him. He's calling you to let him serve you. And we're resisting it because we want to serve him. If you don't think this is true, let me give you two examples. One is Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes to the waters of baptism. John the, John the Baptist is there. Jesus comes to him and says, baptize me. And what does John say? I'm not worthy to do that. 
I'm not worthy to do that. This is what in, in my Pentecostal church we call a religious spirit. I'm not worthy to do that. It sounds so pious. It sounds so holy. Jesus, you're, you're the only one. So like when people say, I just heard someone the other day who preached, and they did, a, they did a good job. And afterwards, somebody thanked them, and they said, oh, it's all God. As our friend Rich Velotis says, no, if it were all God, it would be a lot better than that. <laughs> that was you. Just take the compliment and go on. So, I mean, I hate that kind of piety, right? That in the churches I grew up in, we would have special singing, which wasn't special. I mean, it was special, but it wasn't special. You know what I mean? <laughs> and people would always say, don't listen to me. You know, I, I really can't sing. Just listen to the words. Well, then don't sing. Just read the words. <laughs> or hand it out. Read it off the page. So John the Baptist is being pious and says, no, 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 I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, do it to fulfill all righteousness. Same thing plays out with Peter at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is going to wash their feet. And what is Peter? Again, man, these people. Peter's like, no, 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 I'm not worthy. I should be washing your feet. It's, there's something in us, especially those of us who are good people. Thankfully, I'm not. But those of you who are good people, <laughs> there's something in us, in you, that wants to take care of God. That's not your role. God doesn't need you to serve him. He's not waiting on you to do something for him. He's trying to take care of you. And one of the things that's striking about both of those stories, John the Baptist and Peter, is that immediately after, more or less immediately after that moment where they, def they, they can resist Jesus' request, they have a crisis of faith. So John the Baptist refuses at first to baptize Jesus, then he does it. More or less, the next time we see him, he's sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or not? Because he never saw Jesus the right way in the first place. That's why he was trying to serve him. That's not who Jesus is to us. Jesus is not Lord in that sense. He doesn't want to be Lord in that sense. The devil's really fighting us with this microphone. And then the same thing happens with Peter. I have to wash your feet, right? And then what is it just hours later, a couple of days later, he's denying Jesus. Because if your instinct is to do for God, you will not be able to receive from God what he wants to give you. Because what he wants to give you isn't what you want from him. And here's, here's the hard truth, and this is where it gets dark. All of that was Julie's sermon. This is me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll pass the word on. And she'll get the whole honorarium anyway. She always does. The, the instinct to do for God arises not from love from God, even less love for neighbor but arises from the desire to be in control of our own lives. And it's tied to this idea that if I serve God and God is the most powerful one, then I will be in good with the one who has all the power to make my life what I want it to be. But what we're called to is to yield to the service he wants to offer us. 
but let me make a couple of clarifications. I don't know if you saw the movie Phantom Thread. If you didn't, you probably should. Don't rush out today and do it, but at some point. But it's, I'm going to spoil the ending for you if you haven't seen it. The, it's, it's about a relationship of this kind of cranky, possessive, strange tailor who falls in love with lots of women, but this particular girl who is there to care for him. And it's pretty obvious that he's moving from woman to woman because he wants them to be to him what his mother had been. Like I said, don't need to rush out and see this or anything. <laughs> but it ends with this moment in which it's, it's, it's actually quite powerful, in which the, the, the wife has gone out and gathered mushrooms, poisonous mushrooms, to feed to him. And you think at first that she's going to kill him because she's fed up, no pun intended, with what's taking place. But then you realize, and it's, it's, it's shot in such a way that you realize that both he and she know what's going on here. And that is, she's going to make him sick enough that he has to rely upon her. And that he wants that, and she wants that. She wants to be the one who cares for him. He wants to be cared for. And so there's this kind of agreed upon, unspoken agreement that she will poison him, and he will let her care for him. That's sick. And that's not the kind of service God offers us, <laughs> just to be clear, right? When, we, when I talk about God as our servant, I don't mean that God is constantly poisoning us, so we'll rely on him. But if you think about it for just a moment, we actually suggest that all the time. Trouble comes into our life, and we end up rationalizing it by saying, well, God must have sent this to that person or to me because he wants me to depend upon him. Nope, not how it works. God doesn't poison you with mushrooms, spiritually speaking, or, or literally. And God is not the kind of servant who does whatever we want when we want it. One of the things that's stunning, horrifying about the trials that came after the Holocaust is I think virtually everyone, everyone that I've read about, every one of the Nazis on trial for what they did during the Holocaust. Every one of them, their response was, I was just doing what I was told. I was just doing what I was told. God's not that kind of servant either. God's not useful. You can't resource God to make the life you want to make. You can't reach back and take some of God and throw it at whatever problem you have. That's not how this works. God is the kind of servant who's like the Samaritan who finds you dying in the road. You didn't ask for him to come. I mean, that man is dying. The bandits have left him for dead. He's not crying out, oh, good Samaritan, come and save me. He's just trying not to die. And the Samaritan shows up. And the Samaritan doesn't say, do you want me to pour in the oil and the wine? He just pours in the oil and the wine. He doesn't say, do you want me to take you to the inn for keeping? He just takes him to the inn. God serves us, but he doesn't serve us by waiting on us to tell him what he needs to do. He serves us like a Samaritan, finding us in our brokenness. Everything God does, God does for you, but it may not be what you want. Sometimes patients get strapped to the bed 
because of what is needed. Sometimes it's mercy that straps you to the bed because it's what you need. But don't forget God is there to care for you. And that is what we celebrate. In Luke, Luke's gospel today, in the passage that was, that was read for us, it says that the people, the disciples, are celebrating, they're singing, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, because they had seen his great deeds of power. That's a problem. If what comes out of you is praise only when God breaks through and acts in power, then your praise will be short-lived. And that's why, it's not necessarily the exact same people, but that's why the crowds shift from one day, they're shouting Hosanna, and another day, they're shouting crucify him. Because the people who were shouting Hosanna were attracted to the miracles not to the servant. And what we should celebrate about God is not his power, not the ways in which he breaks in and makes crazy things happen. What we should celebrate about God is his unending compassion and patience and generosity to us. That while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. While we're dying in the road, the Samaritan shows up for us. While we are fighting and resisting the, the cure, he's strapping us to the bed to make us whole. That's what we celebrate about God. That's what we're after. I end with this, Isaiah 50. As you turn there, there's another line in the How Great the Father's Love for Us song. I think it's the fourth stanza that says, I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no wisdom. I will boast in Jesus' name, his death and resurrection. That's right. That's right. We don't wave the palms because he's a miracle worker. We wave the palms because he's God who is not ashamed to be one of us. He's God who becomes a slave for us. That's what we celebrate. A God who washes our feet. A God who needs nothing from us and gives us everything we need. And in no way benefits. Lives entirely for us. That's what we celebrate. But he is a strange Strange man, our God. Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame he who vindicates me is near. Now this, this, of course, Christians read as a prophecy about Jesus. Luke references it as one. And notice what's being said. I gave my back to the smiters. I didn't turn my face from those who plucked the beard or spit in my face. The Lord is with me. I shall not be disgraced. 
So what Jesus embodies, the power Jesus embodies, is not the power to defeat the enemies that strike you, that pull out the beard, that spit in your face. The power Jesus gives is the power that takes all that. The problem of wanting to serve God is we want to serve a God who will make it so that no one ever spits in our face. But the God who serves us says, I want to make it so that even if people spit in your face, you're not disgraced. The God of the gospel is not a God who will keep you from having your beard pulled out or having your back smitten or having insults thrown at you. He won't do it. He didn't do it himself for himself. He didn't do it for his apostles. He won't do it for you or me. People will take advantage of you. People will abuse you. People will curse you and revile you and insult you. And if Jesus is alive in you, it won't matter. Because they can't disgrace you. The Lord will help you to take it. And to take it in such a way that it reveals the inhumanity of what they're doing to you. This, I think, is the message of Palm Sunday. Don't celebrate because God can overthrow your enemies. Celebrate because God in you loves your enemies. Celebrate in that the one who bore the cross for you is alive in you so that you can bear the cross for others. The one who is not ashamed to be a slave for you is alive in you so you don't have to be ashamed to be a slave for others. You, you can live this life. I can live this life because God is coming. And the God who comes is not ashamed to serve us, to wash our feet. And he won't do miracles that save us. But he will do the miracle of making us the kind of people who can live in the midst of brokenness. And that, that's, that's, I think, the promise of Holy Week. Let me pray for you real quickly. Thank you, God, for loving us, loving us so boldly and wildly and unashamedly. Help us to receive your service as you want to give it, to yield to your care. And help us, God, to let you come alive in us for the good of others around us. Even those who are plucking our beards and spitting in our faces, God, come alive in us so that we can turn the other cheek just like you did. We can love knowing that we will not be put to shame. Nothing can separate us from the love of God.